Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and coming up this week are ecstasy and LSD set to become new treatments for depression. Also, who's chattier during their first 18 months of life, the boys or the girls? The answer might surprise you. And NASA's historic public meeting on UFOs. What's the verdict? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, could ecstasy and LSD be used as potential treatments for depression? Speaking at the Hay Festival alongside the UK government's former chief scientific officer, Sir Patrick Vallance, Kate Bingham, who led the UK's COVID vaccine task force, told the audience about emerging evidence suggesting that psychedelic drugs can help people who suffer from some mental health problems. Patrick Vallance said it is imperative that more research gets done. Well, David Nutt is a neuropsychopharmacologist, former government drug czar and chair of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. What was your take on what they had to say, David? Well, I was grateful that they've actually owned up to what we've known for quite a long time, that there is a major mental health crisis in this country, that current treatments are failing up to 40% of people, and that psychedelics and MDMA do have a very strong evidence base. And so I was heartened that uh, at last people outside of the field are getting interested in and promoting it. Both agents are not new. MDMA was made by Merck around the time of World War One. that's ecstasy, and LSD yes. came along dec- a few decades after that. So they're not new drugs. So is this a new use for old drugs or have they been tried in this space before dismissed because we had better stuff and now we're revisiting them what's the story behind this well the story is one of uh, what i call the worst censorship of research in the history of the world these drugs were banned because they were being used recreationally but the bans were particularly hostile because they banned them as medicines even though there was considerable evidence, particularly for LSD. 1,000 papers published on the clinical value of LSD in the 50s and 60s, but when it was banned because of the, it was seen to be fueling the anti-Vietnam War movement, they banned it as a medicine as well, which was reprehensible and, and, and spiteful. And it was actually, you know, has taken us 50 years now to, well, we still haven't overturned the ban, but at least we've got people to accept it is a medicine again. What's the evidence base that it can work in people who have particularly intractable depression and things like that? Well, I'm proud to say it's, uh, it's evidence that we've started to generate at Imperial College. We did the first modern trial of a psychedelic, psilocybin, in people with treatment-resistant depression 
They'd all failed on at least two antidepressants. They'd all failed on CBT. And we had remarkable effects. We had the most powerful effect of a single administration of any treatment in resistant depression there's ever been. And that's led to a lot of companies going off to try to replicate it. And one has already done that. So we probably have a thousand patients now around the world who've shown remarkable benefits just to psilocybin alone. And that evidence base was sufficient for the Australian government a couple of months ago to agree that psilocybin will be rescheduled for treatment-resistant depression as a medicine in Australia at the end of this month. And those effects aren't just while the person's taking the agent, presumably, that there is a legacy benefit after the acute effects of the drug. I don't want to say wear off, but you take the drug, you get some maybe mood-altering effects acutely, but then there's a a mood-altered effect that persists. What is remarkable, so in our first study, which was 10 years ago, there are some people who are well still. The vast majority of the depression creeps back, as it does tend to in most people. But we still had very powerful effects, more powerful than any other treatment, at six months. So yes, a single administration of these drugs can lead to very long-lasting benefits. And do we understand the mechanism behind that? Do we understand how we think that's working? We More than that, we can image the brain after the treatment and we can show that there are changes in brain connectivity and flexibility which predict the outcome. So we know the mechanisms in terms of the brain circuitry. We know the mechanisms in terms of the pharmacology. We even have some overlap with the psychology output as well as the brain signal. So yes, we probably know more about how these drugs work than traditional antidepressants. Now, when it comes to regulating medicines, birds of a feather tend to flock together. Do you think the fact that the Australians have decided to take this step forward will reassure and encourage other jurisdictions so that some of this deadlock will be broken and some of that research that you talked about that we can now we can bring to bear, really, and maybe introduce these things into the clinic again? Well, I do hope so. I I mean, the great thing about the Australian innovation is that it will collect data in a formal way. So within a year, there will probably be a few hundred patients, treatment-resistant patients treated in Australia, which will add enormous amount of extra data to our knowledge. And hopefully that will encourage or persuade other countries to go down the same route. Because remember, a million people a year in the world commit suicide. Half of them are depressed and 40% of them are addicted. They overlap, of course. And if we could just save 10% of those people who commit suicide with these treatments, you know, that's that's 100,000 lives a year saved. What the current situation in terms of regulations and controls is doing is just denying access of therapy. It's not stopping recreational use at all. So it's a, it's a really perverse regulatory system, which, as I say, has censored research for over 50 years and it needs to be changed urgently for the sake of patients as well as researchers. David, thank you very much for joining us to bring us up to speed. That's Professor David Nutt. The World Health Organization wants to ensure the mistakes that turned COVID-19 into a global crisis have a lower likelihood of being repeated in future. And it's with this in mind that the UN body have been working on an international treaty that sets out a joined-up strategy that ideally we will all follow to tackle future pandemics. But critics, including some right-wing MPs here in the UK, say a new agreement could give the WHO too much power. It might, for instance, allow decision-makers in Geneva to inflict lockdowns on certain countries. 
Anjana Ahuja is a contributing writer on science at the Financial Times, and she's also the co-author, alongside Jeremy Farrer, of Spike, The Virus Versus the People, The Inside Story. What was really interesting about it was that it really was a pandemic that stopped the world. And the thing that got us out of it was vaccines, other countermeasures like drugs and so on. But we also had the terrible experience of lockdowns, global supply chains being disrupted, overwhelmed hospitals. It's been a learning experience, I would say. And also, I think it taught us that a coordinated response both within countries and sort of internationally would benefit us in the pandemics that are, I'm pretty sure, still to come. One commentator put it to me right at the beginning that almost a bigger threat than the virus itself was the contagion of misinformation. And she was absolutely right in many respects. We have repeatedly seen reports that that we've been misled many times, in some cases by governments, in some cases by social media claptrap. But misinformation has certainly prominently featured. What was really interesting in the early days, actually, was the World Health Organization saying that we weren't just dealing with an epidemic, we were also dealing with an infodemic. That's really a new phenomenon, given the rise of social media The ease with which people can access multiple sources of news, not always verified. And what really surprised me was how influential some of those channels became. So just for example, the supposed link between coronavirus and 5G. And I think when you have this sort of very febrile atmosphere where you had governments suddenly telling people what to do, telling them to stay inside their homes. People were scared. And I think those are the kind of very difficult, high pressure situations where misinformation can flourish. The other problem we encountered was that there was very much a me too mentality, which was being used as a stick to beat policymakers, where you'd see one country doing one thing, and it might be a bit more vigorous than another. Although we didn't know better, governments were then being held to account. Well, well, they're doing this. Why are we not doing that? It seemed like there was a race to be who could be most strict at certain points in the pandemic, led by very vocal individuals fueled by social media. You're right in terms of lockdowns. We know that they are bad for many, many groups in society. A, they sort of curtail our freedoms in a way that nobody ever wants. And I think they're very much seen as failures by public health. If you have to lock down, it means you haven't really implemented effective infection control measures beforehand. So we had this lurch, didn't we, from sort of almost libertarianism, keys to keep everything open to lockdowns. But I think in terms of our learning, what does it mean now? I think everyone should be questioning having to take these drastic actions. What can we do before then to sort of stop epidemics getting to that stage? What can we do in surveillance? What can we do to to nip these things in the bud at a a much earlier stage? In that respect, though, the World Health Organization Mm -hmm. are now in the throes of drawing together international treaties with people signing up to try to come up with some kind of consensus so that there is less beating about the bush, Me Too thinking and disorganisation, really, which is what was dominating some of the early responses to the pandemic. What are they actually advocating for? And do you think that it's realistic? The treaty goes back to March 2021, when we put ourselves back at that time. And it's very hard to do that now. 
everyone sort of thought never again. The world was so disrupted. And so global leaders, including Boris Johnson, came together. They all put their names to a document that said, we're going to go for this treaty. And the words were that no single government or multilateral agency can address this threat alone. And the idea, I think, was to look back on some of the things that were real sticking points in the pandemics. How do we share data? You've got the current controversy over the origins of of COVID-19. How do we sort of go into labs and, and, and know what's happening? How do vaccines get made and produced in a way that kind of suits everybody? And how does personal protective equipment get distributed? So that's what the treaty is meant to do, is to, is to try to have a slightly more coordinated international effort to a future pandemic response. The sticking points, bearing in mind that the WHO doesn't have the powers to march into countries or compel them to do anything, are things like what qualifies as a pandemic? How does the treaty fit in with the existing regulations? What principles is it trying to uphold? Trying to protect sovereignty of countries, transparency. How do you get the global supply chain to work? And who pays for pandemic preparedness and response, for example? There is supposed to be agreement by 2024. I think many people see that as quite ambitious. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link, though. And the weak link here in terms of cooperation, collaboration, transparency is the country where it was first detected and where it might. We've had George mm. Gao, the former CDC lead in China, now admitting that it could well have, have begun in China. We, we just don't know. But China remain that weak link. They don't seem to cooperate. So are we really beating our heads against the wall with this? We'll all sign up to this with all good intentions, but the weak link remains. In terms of the treaty itself, multiple global leaders have signed up to it very enthusiastically, or at least signed up to a version of it. We'll have to wait and see what happens with China and how the future investigation into the origin of COVID's play out. Countries have sovereignties, but they also have leaky borders. So what one country does, does affect their neighbours. These are really, really tricky conversations. But I think any modern concept of geopolitics has to include pandemics and how we deal with health threats now, because we've seen how bad things can get. He who does not learn from the past is doomed to repeat it. So we must absolutely learn a lesson from COVID. That was journalist and author Angina Ahuja. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, we'll be finding out about NASA's extraordinary public meeting on UFOs, what turned up. Before that, though, a sound that will be probably very familiar to newish parents across the world. It is the unmistakable sound of a young child trying to talk. But somewhat surprisingly, researchers at the University of Memphis say that boys are more likely to produce these speech-like vocalisations in their first 18 months of life than girls are. And it's all to do with boosting their survival rates, apparently. Kim Oller is a professor at the University of Memphis and behind the study, which he told me happened almost by accident. 
we didn't know that we were going to be interested in studying sex effects. We gathered data on early vocal development, and we happened to have lots of boys and girls. And so uh, just by chance almost ran an analysis comparing the boys and the girls. We were surprised to find that the boys were actually vocalizing more than the girls in the first year. And the reason that's a little surprising is that there is a very widespread belief that females have an advantage in language. And so we had thought if there would be a difference between boys and girls, that the girls would be favored. Uh, they weren't. Of course, there's a difference between vocalization and language. So is there a distinction there in your study? Boys make noise, but it's the girls that later maybe emerge as the, the stronger linguists. Yeah, that's a good point. All that we see in the first year in these vocalizations we think of as precursors to speech is an emerging capacity and inclination to use the voice. How did you get this data? I, I know you said this was opportunistic, but how did you come by all these recordings in the first place? And how many recordings did you have? 450,000 hours of recording. And the way I got in contact with it was through an organization that I've been working with for almost 20 years now. It's called the Lena Foundation. They've produced a, a recording system, a little iPod-sized recorder that you can put in the vest of a, a child's T-shirt or a, a little vest, uh, and it will record all day long what the baby does. And they have also developed a way of using automated analysis so that they can count the number of vocalizations the babies are producing, and they can count the number of what we call conversational turns, times when the baby says something and someone else says something within five seconds of that. So we, we acquired these data by automated analysis of these 450,000 hours of recording. Let's break it down a bit then. So who was saying what at what age and how did the boys and girls differ? What we're interested in, of course, is the sounds that are actually thought to be precursors to speech. Those were produced at rates two to three per minute. Um, and that's true of both boys and girls, except that the boys are a little more. They were nine to 10% more vocal than the girls in the first year. And is that the crossover point then, where the girls begin to take over at the one-year point, the boys dominate for that first year, and then there's a switchover? In this particular study, we saw the girls begin to show a significantly larger rate of vocalization by about 18 months, something like that. So it's towards the end of the second year that the girls finally sort of take over. Was that interaction driven? Can your recordings reveal whether it's just the parents are chattier with the girls, perhaps because they do something that solicits that chattiness and that elicits a response from the baby girls more than the boys? Or was this just spontaneous vocalisation that dominated in the boys for the first 18 months and then switches into a female-dominated picture after that? First of all, uh, it should be clarified that the data show that uh, people were talking in the neighbourhood of the girls more often than the boys across the whole two-year period. So the tendency for boys to be more vocal did not correspond to a tendency for parents to talk more in their neighborhood in the first year. Now, as for why it would be that the boys would show more vocalization in the first year, we think that's associated with the tendency of boys to be more vulnerable to dying in the first year than girls are. Now, this appears to be a pretty much a human universal Boys are just more fragile in some ways that presumably uh, because of immunological differences between boys and girls uh, to dying in the first year. And the rate of death 
of infants in the first year is much higher than it is in subsequent years. Consequently, we think that the rate of vocalization that boys are producing in the first year being higher than, than girls in the first year has to do with the fact that they are signaling their wellness with vocalization and in some sense eliciting more care for them in the first year by their parents. What do you think the mechanism of this is then? Is it reflected in the way the brain wires itself up so that in males there there is some kind of preferential wiring to make these vocalisations which is then outcompeted or outpaced by female nerve development which catches up and then surpasses the boys once they get beyond that vulnerable window period you've just outlined? The way we reason about this is that humans vocalize so much in the first years of life because humans are born in a way where they they have to be taken care of by caregivers. You know, they can't get their own food. They need protection. The reason they vocalize so much is presumably that they have been naturally selected to use vocalization as a way of signaling their wellness because caregivers will invest in babies that they think are the most viable. And so any signals that they could produce that would suggest I am well and better than my brother would be selected for. And in the case of boys, it's particularly important that they signal their wellness in that first year because they're so vulnerable to die. Absolutely fascinating that, isn't it? Professor Kim Oller there from the University of Memphis. Now, NASA have been holding their first public meeting on its study of UFOs, the panel which was set up last year, has been looking at data on so-called unidentified anomalous phenomena. One massive anomaly is why they felt compelled to change the name. But anyway, NASA have said that a staggering 800 such incidents are under investigation. Dr David Whitehouse is a space scientist and an author, and he's been watching NASA's public meeting uh, and and can hopefully tell us what he picked up and took away from, from the viewing. David, tell us about what they've discussed. Well, it was part of a, an approach to UFOs that is quite novel, really, in the sense that in the past, scientists have stayed away from this subject because of the association with conspiracies, with spaceships and aliens and abductions and cover-ups. Uh, but a few years ago, the New York Times showed a few videos taken from the uh, cockpits of fighter pilots showing some very strange objects indeed. And that started the thaw with scientists saying, well, actually, perhaps somewhere in the mix, somewhere has got lost in all this, there might be a phenomena that is worth studying. So part of the process of actually building a framework to study this, to find those strange uh, events. NASA held this, this meeting, and it was a very good example of laying the groundwork of particular how the United States airspace is surveilled, what they can see, what instruments and sensors they use, and um, how many of what they have seen over a year are anomalous and needed sort of some sort of extra explanation. So it was a very interesting change of direction and very interesting scientific groundwork for this study. Was this really an attempt to sort of disabuse some people of these sort of conspiracy theories to, to try to bring more science to bear on this? So rather than it just being spooky things happening, it's let's look at this scientifically. Let's have a proper framework through which we can collect the information, but also be more transparent about it. Because that's been the other thing that's fueled a lot of these conspiracy theories, isn't it? That it's hard to access some of the information. It's all classified. 
Well, in some respects, the Ministry of De- the Department of Defence data is has been classified, although that has been coming out over the past few years. But you know, if you're implying that it's a, it's a way of sorting out the wheat from the chaff, then exactly that, because there, if you look at UFOs, unidentified aerial phenomena, you find a whole load of stuff, a whole load of debate and argument, conspiracy theories mostly very bad video of things which are obviously nothing unusual at all. So in order to to get rid of that and, and ask the basic question, is there something there? And the thing which I drew from this is that, look at, look at air traffic controllers. Um, there are 14,000 air traffic controllers in the United States. There are 16.5 million flights a year and 45,000 flights a day. And yet with all their data, with 20,000 airports, the, the guy was asked, how many anomalous things have you seen? And his answer was three to five. And they were very strange, <laughs> but a very small percentage of, uh, of what is the most intensely guarded airspace in the world. And actually, that data did not include the military surveillance uh, of the United States Air Force. So they are gathering the groundwork for this. And not, not, I mean, don't get the wrong impression, there are some observations that people have had that are genuinely strange. And it's to actually focus on those and get rid of the rest that the first part of this meeting was about. What is public opinion, really? Where does the barometer sit on this? Do most people think that this is rubbish or do most people think there's something in this or are most people undecided? Because to my mind, as a sort of rational scientist, I find it hard to reconcile that someone who had a technology enabling them to conquer space and time and vast distances, which is what you'd have to do in order to be able to travel the sorts of distances we know are involved in getting across the universe to come and visit us. What could they possibly need to learn about our planet by coming here that they couldn't already know? Well, that's an interesting question in the sense that it's not impossible that we could be being visited or that tomorrow an alien spaceship could arrive in orbit uh, around the Earth and and start talking to us. So it's not impossible. And we do not know what aliens look like, what their spaceships would look like. So when we see something strange and unusual, if somebody says, well, they're probably right. Oh, it's certainly right that it's a strange atmospheric phenomena because we don't know what an alien spaceship looks like or their motivation or their their mode of uh, behavior. You cannot logically totally say it's not an alien because we don't know what aliens would look like. But overall, the interesting thing about this phenomena is is trying to bring the science into it. Because if you look at America in particular, and to a certain extent this country, there is a vast public fascination and hunger for alien information. And if you if you go to America, you see television programs and people going on concert on speaking and presentation tours, talking about aliens, ancient aliens, UFO encounters. And they are full of people. There are so many millions of people who want this stuff, who are entertained by it or are convinced by it. And yet, here we come with a scientific approach, which is probably going to show, oh, we're certainly going to show there's a phenomena there, but it's nothing to do with aliens. I think we know that already. That won't convince very many people. So your, your argument is that uh, it's more that there are unexplained phenomena and that there's something intriguing and interesting about them. They don't have to be aliens. They're important oh. and they're worth looking at, regardless of what causes them to happen. Oh, exactly. Is there, The question is, is there a phenomenon there? It's not a question of, is this evidence of aliens? Because I think it's pretty obvious from all the evidence of alien encounters, so to speak, 
that is that we're not being visited. <laughs> we will have to wait and see. I guess the horrible pun, David, is is watch this space, isn't it? But I won't say exactly, it because that exactly. would just make people cringe. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much again for joining us, David. It's lovely to have you on the programme. That's David Whitehouse, space scientist and author. Well, now it's time for question of the week, and our own James Titko took on this week's quandary sent in by listener Gary. Suppose I build a time machine that can transport me one decade, one century or one millennium into the past or future. Would I, with all my typical 2023 bacteria, viruses, antigens, etc., landing in an urban setting, become the starting point for an epidemic? Or would I quickly die to pathogens that are not common today? Wow, what a question. Definitely going to need some help for this one. And that's why I've enlisted Dr. Brian Ferguson, immunologist from the University of Cambridge. Take it away, Brian. It's a great question, Gary. I would have thought going forwards in time, you were likely to have little impact on others, as you are unlikely to be right now carrying a pathogen that's untreatable in the future. If you were to go back in time somewhere prior to 1940, however, you might well be the cause of an outbreak, as long as you assume you end up in a densely populated urban area. This is because the people you will meet are not likely to be immune to one or more of the pathogens you are now carrying for example, flu or SARS or rhinoviruses, etc. Think about the devastating impact of the Eurasian infections on Native American people during the colonial period, wiping out 90% of the population. But that still leaves us with the impact on the time-travelling individual themselves, Brian. Well, if you go forward in time far enough, it's also possible that you will catch a disease that has not yet jumped into humans, but is circulating in the population at the exact time you land or arrive although you would probably have to be quite unlucky for that to happen. Similarly, if you go back far enough, say more than 100 years, you may be unlucky enough to catch and potentially die of smallpox, as you're not likely to be vaccinated against that. This is all assuming our traveller is up to date on all the jabs we're provided by modern medicine. Exactly. If you remove medicine as a variable and you assume no one is vaccinated against anything and there aren't any hospitals, etc., then all bets are off. In this hypothetical scenario, whether you go back in time or forward in time, you are likely to suffer from something nasty that you catch when you land, and you may well spread something you are currently carrying into an immune-naive population. In that sense, you would be the time-travelling version of patient zero. So there you have it, Gary. With great power comes great responsibility, it seems. Next time, we'll be answering this question from listener Akula. Can we compress gas into a solid? Join us next time to find the answer. Thanks very much to James Titko there. And that's all we have time for this week. But before we go, I wanted to tell you about a brand new series we'll be launching featuring in-depth interviews with some of the legends of science, including fertility specialist Robert Winston, Anthony Fauci, Sally Davies and spacewoman Helen Sharman. So do stay tuned for that. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.